everybody, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today we have on Elizabeth Kristoff, who is the founder of Brain-Based Wellness. It's an online platform where she combines intelligent movement training, applied neurology, and somatic practices to help people learn how to self-regulate their nervous system. She reached out to me because she read the trauma post that, um, you know, and the trauma episode that I released previous to this one. And she was really excited to talk to me about what she has found through her personal story that has brought her to applied neurology and how that can help people heal trauma. And it was a aspect of this research that I hadn't been exposed to. And so I was like, fuck yeah, let's do a podcast. <clears throat> so she's been in this space for the last 15 years. Uh, she's a certified Pilates instructor, which is actually where she first started to see that helping people connect to their bodies was actually spontaneously helping people heal their trauma. And then she got into functional neurology and she's now officially a licensed practitioner or a certified practitioner. There's all these technicalities about what type of fucking initial you have at the end of your name to be qualified to help people anyways. <clears throat> um, she used this to heal her own um, traumas, uh, specifically binge eating and, you know, just the inability to self-regulate. And she has used this practice to help hundreds of clients. And she actually um, walks me through a couple of techniques that you can do at home on the podcast. It was super dope. Uh, one of the things that she wanted me to make clear is that this is not a replacement for therapy or medication, but it's a tool that you can add into any healing program that will help. As always, this podcast is brought to you by my newsletter. Uh, if you want to get on that, go to my website, erigati.com. It's on the homepage and also my journaling course. Um, I actually plan on releasing a more simplified version of the journaling course, which just walks you through expressive writing or the stream of consciousness writing. And then every day for 31 days, I'll drop in a little audio clip where I share like a quote that I love or what's coming up in my journaling practice that day, just to help you guys solidify the practice. And then the original journaling course, the one that's up now, that's going to be a more advanced version because what I'm recognizing is I fucking put some sauce in that course. And, um, you know, like I teach people about internal family systems. And then week two is about expressive writing over a traumatic experience in your past. And that seems to really challenge people, obviously. Um, and I feel like it's getting in the way of teaching people how to do the daily practice of journaling. And so I'm working on a L-I-T-E version, a light version, uh, which we'll be releasing soon. <clears throat> and I'm actually working with a friend on creating a digital journal that will integrate the journaling course in such a way, in a program where once you answer a few core questions, Every day, a dashboard will show you uh, what your goal pyramid is, uh, what your ethos and your dharma are, what your yearly goals are, what your quarterly goals are, what your daily habits are. And then there's going to be a dream or a journal section that will automatically populate every day. 
And um, we've also been working on this little tactic to, you know, like I tell people, if you want to remember your dreams, record them in your voice memo so you don't have to get out of bed and you don't have to turn on a light and you don't have to write. And that's really helped people begin to remember their dreams. Uh, this program will actually link to your phone in such a way where you can share the voice memo from your phone to this app and it will appear at the bottom of your journal entry in this program. And then you can play it and then write out like what comes up as you listen to it. And I'm super excited to have this in my life because it's going to help me dive deeper and also keep a record of my dreams and what days they come on. So anyways, that's coming on the horizon. It's still probably going to be about five or six weeks until that's done, but I'm really pumped about it. Um, so, so yeah, I just wanted to share that with you guys. Uh, those are the ways that you can help support this podcast because I don't take ads. And thank you guys so much for listening. I love you guys. And by the time this comes out, I will be preparing to go do ayahuasca for the second time. So... Send your love and your prayer my way. I love you guys. Namasteezy. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, you actually reached out after having read my or listened to my podcast on trauma. And I can yes. and I'm genuinely excited to, you know, talk to an expert and to really explore um, you know, this conversation more deeply because I feel that it's such a fundamental part of the mental health and chronic physical health epidemic that's happening that's not talked about. I agree completely. And I loved the podcast and I'm honored to be here and really, really excited to have this conversation. Beautiful. The question that I like to ask to you know help the audience start to connect with who they're listening to is, let's say that you just finished doing something that puts you into a flow state. And I walked up to you after it and I asked you, who are you and what do you do? What would you say? Yeah, well, you know, I really feel like at, at like my highest and, and maybe at my most fundamental state, I'm a person who believes that healing is possible and maybe not just possible, but a responsibility. And I believe that it has to occur in both the body and the nervous system, as well as the cognitive mind. And I really feel like my life is here to, to stand for that possibility for myself and for other people. And I feel like there's a growing conversation about the role of the nervous system and somatic healing. And I really just want to be a part of that conversation. I want to contribute and to amplify that because I know through my own experiences how painful it is to be stuck in patterns, how hopeless it can feel to be driven by a dysregulated nervous system, and how that prolonged stress can not only lead to like mental disorders, but also to disease. So I'm really passionate about putting that message out there. And that's why when I heard your trauma episode, I felt so compelled to reach out. And you know what? I can feel that my intuition is I'm going to step out of the normal structure of the podcast because I want to maximize the amount of time that we have to really explore you know, your expertise. And so to give me a sense and the audience a sense of what brought you to this you know, life mission, can you kind of give us a, as detailed as feels right to you, tapestry of the journey that brought you to this being your calling? Sure, I would love to. So 
First of all, uh, you know, more practically, what I do is I'm the founder of an online platform called Brain-Based Wellness, and I am a practitioner of applied neurology. And that is just taking the latest information in neuroscience and breaking it down into really practical, applicable training that someone could do every day to reduce the threat level that their nervous system is under so they can train their nervous system to be more resilient, to move out of unwanted behavior, to move out of chronic pain, and to move more into a performance mode where they have more energy, they can be more connected, and Mm. they're capable of bringing about the change that they want in their life. And that started for me, it all began when I had a Pilates studio and I I was a partner in owning a Pilates studio for about 12 years uh, here in Austin. And in 2014, we started a teacher training program and I knew that I wanted brain science and brain-based movement to be a part of it. I knew that that was where movement science was going. And I understood that like, you don't have a tight hip flexor, right? There's no tiny little brain inside of your hip flexor telling it to be tight. You have a brain that is under threat that is making your hip flexor tighter because it doesn't trust you to make quality movement, right? So you have to address the brain system in order to get better range of motion out of your hip flexor. It's not going to happen by like mashing it with a foam roller. It's going to happen by training the deficit in your nervous system that makes your brain think, okay, it's safe for her to have good range of motion through her hips. So now I'm going to relax the hip flexor and give her that strength and range of motion. And so I understood that. And I knew that I wanted that to be part of our teacher training. And, um, I found a neurological Institute in Arizona that does applied neurology and and began studying with them in, in 2014. And we weave that into our movement practice, mostly for pain reduction and um, improved athletic performance. So we trained the vision system, we trained the balance system inside of your inner ear and your body mapping system, the mechanoreceptors in your joints to allow your brain to get better input. And when your brain gets better input, it feels safer making predictions to keep you alive. And then you get better performance. You move out of a protective way of being into a performance way of being. Interesting. Um, so a thing to, yeah. that comes up that I want to clarify with you is <clears throat> that the our neurology has a certain set of feedback systems where it's essentially trying to take in data from the environment, make predictions about how to behave in a way about whether or not those behaviors will be adaptive and that the more adaptive the hypothesized behavior is, from receiving the external information, the safer we feel. And the safer we feel, the less pain that we have, the less likely we are to move into addictive patterns or avoidant patterns. Is, is that essentially what you're saying? Yep, that's pretty much it exactly. So it's an input-based system. And your brain is always taking in that sensory information. So it's right. taking in information from your eyes, ears, skin, joints, and triangulating it to make a really clear picture of where your body is in space and the world around you. And the most Mm. important thing to know when you're thinking about an applied neurology perspective is that your brain's primary job is your survival. It is wired to keep you alive. And so um, it's always making the decision safe or unsafe. And if the information that it's getting in is clear, if you can train yourself to have better quality input, then your brain feels safer making those predictions, recognizing the patterns to keep you alive. And so the threat level of your nervous system is reduced on a second-by-second basis. 
And is there an a, a single or a uh, or a few objective tests that can be done in real time to detect what the threat level activation is of our neurology? Um, mostly I, I assess people by watching them walk and you can tell a lot about someone's neurological deficits by the way that they walk, um, their gait pattern, but you can also do coordination tests. You can do range of motion tests and we just do a lot of things on the site where you learn different neuro drills and it's really important in applied neurology to always assess and reassess because change at the level of the nervous system is instantaneous, lightning quick. And so you can do a drill, a training drill for your eyes, and then be happy to walk you through some later um, that even listeners could do as well. And you do a drill and then you reassess. And if your range of motion gets better, if the exercise is easier, if your state of well-being is better, then that is stimulation that your brain needs. And you can train your brain doing that drill daily or before you work out. And if it gets worse, then it was too much stimulus for your nervous system and it was moving it into threat. And then you wouldn't want to do that. So you start to become the expert of your own nervous system and how to give your brain stimulus and training that it needs to reduce your unique deficits. I feel called to move backwards in time a little bit to understand you a little bit more. What brought you to Pilates? Yeah, so um, yeah, so this is really just the beginning of how I got into somatics and applied neurology. But what brought me to Pilates was I've always been a mover. Um, I have. Um, movement, my movement practices have seen me through all of the tough times of my life. And I really believe that if I wasn't moving at like with discipline regularly, I don't, I don't know that I would have survived. And that was just a natural instinctual thing that I had from a very early age. I have a lot of childhood trauma and I was an addict and an alcoholic. I got sober when I was 24 and I started the business that same year when I was 24 and, um, and it became a way for me to share what had helped me to that point heal so much in my life and, right. and kept me afloat. And so I was always really passionate about moving and Pilates is just a really good way to teach people how to come into their body and how to move with precision and, and breath and be in alignment. What I love is literally today, um, I was writing a newsletter and I wrote the sentence and it was almost word for word what you said about movement. But for me, it was like writing and reading and trying to translate psychology. But I wrote that essentially this practice of reading and writing every day is literally how I've survived my life. And mm. the idea that I was connecting to <clears throat> is probably my favorite idea in all of psychology is the idea that each of us are born with an inner guide and the Greeks called it your daemon and that your daemon knows what your life calling is or what your dharma is, but your ego forgets. And that, you know, the first quarter of our lives is really about waking up to the call of our daemon and that each, each person on this planet has a unique call. And yours sounds like the foundation of it is movement. Yes, that's very true. I feel like all of my healing and all of my teaching subsequently has been about coming back to the body and coming back to the body through movement. And 
even as my, I feel like my life has just been a series of unfoldings, just like you described, where right. it continues to take me deeper into my life's purpose through healing. And it is, it is always through movement for me. Yeah. And one of the theories that I'm playing with is I think that, so one of the things I've found in psychology that uh, is like, probably the most important felt sensation for someone to have to be resilient to trauma and suffering is the felt sense of agency. And that's okay. essentially feeling that you have a will and that your will has the ability to improve your life. And that yes. each of us has a daemon and that the daemon will essentially ask you to pick up a craft, some type of yeah. art, some type of work, and that if you say yes to it and you begin to cultivate it, you will create a felt sense of agency. You will experience the transcendence that comes through when you hit that flow state, doing the thing that you know that you're meant to do, that gives you this feeling of transcendence that is more enjoyable than any movie, more enjoyable than most sex, but not all sex, more enjoyable than food. And that, um, yours and i can already hear in your life story that it has served that function in your life and so the question that comes up for me is what was your first memory where you realized that movement was your thing wow that's a really good question um you know i remember even from a very early age, walking, like taking really long walks, taking really long walks with my mom. And that would, when I was young, I would have pretty severe tantrums where I, I had big, big emotions and my early childhood was pretty rough. And I didn't know what to do with those emotions. I didn't know. And it always felt like something was chasing me is the best way I can describe it. And right. now, of course, looking back through the lens, lens of somatics and applied neurology, I understand that I was like stuck in a state of flight, in a state of hypervigilance, but it felt like, like life was just chasing me. And so when I would be in that way, sometimes I would engage in self-harm. It was like I was just thrashing around. But if I could have forward movement, like I could go for a long walk. So I remember being very young, like maybe four or five. And my mom started to learn that if, when I was having one of those tantrums, we could go for a walk together. Um, that was the only thing that would calm me down. And I really wow. think like from that place, I, I've always needed to have forward movement to calm my nervous system down. That's incredible. And I love like <clears throat> whenever I get to know somebody and I start getting an intuition of like what their daemon is like and I ask them that question, it's almost always the age four or five. Like there's some mm. first memory where, uh, and it's, it's amazing to have a parent that is perceptive enough to realize like, oh, if we do this activity, it brings peace to the child, mm. you know, yeah. And yeah. that they were able to cultivate that. Uh, did you play sports growing up? I I always did a lot of individual um, individual sports. So I was a runner, um, hence the the forward movement. So I did <laughs> cross country. I was an ice skater for a long time, um, and then and then went into more like a fitness and fitness training kind of background when I got to college. 
would you be willing to share um, when the addiction pattern started and yeah. what the story was about how that began? And if you're willing to to tell the story of how it unfolded and then how it came to an end, because that seems to be the birth of the part of the story that we'll get into that begins with the creation of the Pilates studio. Yeah, absolutely. So um, really, honestly, uh, like I said, so I was born in Germany and um, my dad was an alcoholic and he was pretty abusive to my mom. And so she knew at some point it, he was abusive in many ways um, to me, which I didn't find out till later, but there was all the kinds of abuse that you can imagine going on. And my mom um, found out about that and realized that we had to leave. And in Germany, they will most of the time give custody to the father. And especially since she was not a German citizen and he was, and so she knew she needed to leave with me. So we left pretty quickly, um, without a lot of notice. And we moved to Texas where she was from in a tiny little town in Brady, Texas. And I didn't speak any English and she was working a lot because she was ensuring our survival. So I was alone a lot. Um, and confused because my family was gone overnight and coming from this really chaotic kind of situation to a situation where it was very isolating. And, um, so even at that age, I started to turn to like self-harm and food. Um, binge eating is a huge part of my story. And so that began very young, probably again, like around four or five and dealt with that and had, you know, self-harm began around then too. And then when I found alcohol, it was like, oh yeah, that's, you know, alcohol kept me alive. Alcohol was everything that I needed to, to handle the world and to handle my big emotions until it wasn't anymore. Right. What age did you first find alcohol? Um, probably like 14 or 15. Yeah. Um, probably 14 or 15 And, and food and alcohol and love and sex and, money and workaholism and I can, it's all the (laughs) same, you know, like it's all woven through my whole life. Um, and so the alcohol was just, it it was more deadly and my behavior got more self-destructive. As I said, like running from that feeling of that franticness of, of feeling like I had to escape life and then also still wanting to live. And it was just a, a really painful time. And because I was, because everything was so intensified for me. I think that's why probably I got so, I got, I got sober so young because it, if I didn't, I, I think I would have died. Um, was there and, a singular moment, um, at the tail end of all of the addiction patterns that triggered the sobriety? And if so, could you tell that story? Yeah. So I, um, I overdosed frequently. Um, and so that wasn't anything new. I was always trying to do something to myself, like jump out of a moving car, take the hairdryer in the bathtub, or, uh, you know, it was just frantic. It was very frantic. But this particular time I had just moved back to Austin. I was living in Colorado and I was about to start graduate school and I was living with my mom while I got back on my feet. And so I overdosed at my mom's house and, um, I was in the ER and she was there with me. And that was the first time that my mom had been there in that situation and, and seen it. And I remember Interesting. Um, looking at her face and the 
it just broke me. It broke my ego enough for like that light to shine through. And I looked at her and I said, I, I need to get sober, you know, I need help. And I realized for the first time that I I probably wasn't going to die. It was just going to go on like this for a really long time. And that I was not only making my own life very chaotic, but I was really hurting someone that I loved very much. And that was enough. And so, you know, she said, we'll get you a good psychiatrist. And I said, nope, that's not going to cut it. You know, I need to get sober. And that was the last time I had a drink. So what's wild is just today, I read a chapter of a book where they were describing how people think they want epiphanies, but a real epiphany destroys you. It destroys Mm -hmm. the ego. And I think that Mm -hmm. you use the perfect phrase. And I've had a couple of moments in my life where um, an epiphany saved my life, but it saved my life by killing my ego. And um, for me... Yes, I can relate to that. My epiphany moment came at 19. Um, I had dropped out of all of my classes in college. I was lying to my parents about passing classes. My GPA was a 0.7. And uh, I was getting high one night alone in my house. And I was watching a stand-up special where a comedian made a joke where he essentially you know, was saying, we all think that we're the smart people. But if the electricity went out, what would you do? You would do what I would do you would sit here and you would wait. And if the electricity didn't come back on in three minutes, you'd be like these fucking idiots. But if they never, if all the smart people died, what would we do? We would fucking die. And I was high enough where I had this epiphany where I realized I was ruining my life. I didn't know how to do anything that was actually practical. And Everyone around me were people that I didn't actually care about or that didn't even care about me because they didn't know me. And I was just being weak and running away. And um, Uh, there's a deep like humility that comes from a true epiphany that destroys the ego. And it sounded like being witnessed, you know, by the person that you probably love the most in the world. Um, Absolutely. That you couldn't hide and then non-hiding. And that's how I felt too. It felt like I couldn't hide from the truth. And so mm-hmm. I had to change. So what yep. was your process of transformation? Like, was it just a clicking or was there a struggle at the beginning? Oh gosh, there was a struggle. My ego resisted it so much. I was so attached to that identity. I was so attached to my pain and, um, and violence and darkness. And so I fought that a lot. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I do 12 step recovery and that saved my life. And, um, I surrounded myself with people and and very, very gradually began to let them in. And I'm talking about like over years of time of like resisting it and hating it. And at the same time, not wanting to die and not wanting to go back Um, and I, I started the business and I really poured myself into that. Mm. And in some ways that really saved me. And in other ways, I, I took a deep dive into workaholism then, and my identity became so wrapped up in the studio and so wrapped up in the business that if the business was okay, I was okay. If the business was safe, I was safe. 
Um, but when right. we hit a time of incredible financial strain and when I had to leave that partnership, that was another time where then my ego was completely shattered because I had aligned all of my safety, all of my security, all of my identity and community with the business. And I really, I started that when I got sober. I'm curious what the first experience that you had where you realized that you were actually healing. Because what I hear is there's the stage of your life where you recognize that you're running from whatever your psyche is asking you to look at. And then the starting to become sober moment is like, okay, I'm going to answer the call. And then there's a moment after that where there's the first experience where you genuinely feel like, oh my God, I'm healing. Like something is working. What was that first moment for you? That moment was probably about three or four years after I got sober. Um, I think that's important for people to hear. You know, yeah. is that you made the yeah. commitment, and it still took three or four years to feel it in your body that you were healing. Because a lot of people, most people, don't even say yes to the call. But the people who do say yes to the call, they're hoping that it comes quick. And I think that this mm -hmm. is important for people to hear. Yeah, it did not come quick for me. I was angry. I had a lot of rage and sadness and, you know, resented everyone. Um, but I, I remember I was at a restaurant with a couple other women and I was just sitting there and we just started laughing about something. Mm -hmm. And I felt completely present and completely at ease in my own skin. And I, it was, it, I felt it. And I was like, this is what people talk about when they say like, don't give up until the miracle happens. Like this wow. is the, this is the miracle right now. And it was just another night at a restaurant. And, but it, from, from that point on, I knew that I had a choice to hold on to my pain and to hold on to my rage or to, to let it go. And, to just keep doing the next right thing. And it's never like linear for me. It's more like an upward spiral rather right. than like a straight up line. And yeah. so I come back across the same things over and over again, but I trust the tools more every time. You know, I trust my, my spiritual practices, my meditation, my movement practices. I trust somatic healing. And I know as I come back around to these things, Every time it gets easier to know that like, this is not going to last forever. I have the tools to deal, this, deal with this. It works. And I just have to lean in, you know, I have to trust. Absolutely. What do you find was the most healing or beneficial or useful part of the 12-step program for you personally? Um, gosh, so many things. Developing a spiritual practice. Right. Learning how to not react to everything that I wanted to, you know, <laughs> <Goodbye>. <laughs> like when I was in excruciating pain, having someone say, sit on your hands and come over and sleep on my couch if you need to, but you're not allowed to hurt yourself. You're not allowed to do this. You have, you do whatever it takes right. and, and understanding that I, that I could do that. And then, um, you know, putting myself out to another person and having them witness all of me and right. still loving me, you know? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I find that um, I've always been drawn to like deconstructing the 12 step program because I feel how potent it is. 
And the parts mm-hmm. that most stand out to me are the first one is to essentially bow the ego before the soul. And I think that that's mm-hmm. probably one of the most important things that we can do in our psyche to really start to heal, which is, you know, that the most important thing happening inside of your psyche is not your ego. It's that whisper. And that feels like that's taken care of by the first step. But then the part that I feel is super powerful is community. I think it's one of the things that is most lacking in our culture. There's a study that came out a couple of years ago that found that one in four people report not having a single close friend. And then the research on loneliness finds that if you self-report as being lonely, you're more likely to die early from disease than if you are an alcoholic, than if you're obese, than if you smoke 15 cigarettes a day, or if you live in a place with terrible uh, air pollution. Like, yes, it yeah. kills us. And so well, we're, I think we're social animals. We're, 100%. you know, that's in our DNA. And so, yeah, I believe that. And I find that like whenever I talk to someone who's done the 12-step program, like all of them have this like inner sense of resilience that I don't feel in other people. And so there's just always this deep curiosity about like, how the 12 steps um, impacted them. Oh, and the other one that always stood out to me was writing down all of your transgressions and then going back to each of those people and basically, if possible, just telling the truth and and Mm -hmm. saying sorry. Yeah, yeah. And realizing how skewed your own perspective of the truth often is (laughs) when you bring it out into the light. And it, it looks very different when you're open with it. And yeah, I think a lot of times it's just being witness to uh, that miracle in other people too, and finding uh, people who can articulate and express the things that you felt inside that you thought only you were experiencing. And here's these other people talking about it and, and they're different now. And so that gives you that tiny read of hope to believe that maybe it's possible for you. And then you get to watch that happen in other people. So I think that a lot of that resilience comes because I I feel inside of myself, man, I was supposed to die an alcoholic addict death and I, I didn't. And so anything is possible, you know? I love that. And the question that I feel coming up in me now is, um, it's clear that your nervous system uh, held on to trauma early in life mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. the non-processing of the trauma for 20 plus years led to all of these behaviors. Yeah. Uh, given what you understand about trauma and how it's healed, and I would love to hear your mm-hmm. perspective on how you would articulate how it's healed. When was your first moment where you felt that you were genuinely processing a trauma from childhood? Like, what was your first experience where you could feel it somatically releasing? You know, that didn't happen until much, much later for me. Um, I think I was processing it with my movement. But like I said, I also went into a lot of other compensations and, and lived my life for a long time in sobriety, in my business, 
kind of cycling through a state of hypervigilance and hypovigilance, you know, just working and running myself into the ground and trying to secure safety out of everything. And then I would crash. I would binge eat. I would have a migraine. I would have to stay in bed for two or three days with the covers pulled over my head. And I didn't understand, but my nervous system was just cycling between those states of fight, flight, and shutdown and freeze. And I was never finding that that sweet spot in the middle of those two. And I, even though I taught mindful movement, I was very disconnected from my body. I was very dissociated. And so it wasn't until I began another healing path that I was brought into my body and and re-came back to some of my childhood trauma because a couple years ago, you know, I left the business partnership. Like I said, it was a really financially stressful time for me. Um, and I lost a lot of my identity and it was a prolonged period of stress. So some of the outputs of my nervous system started to get really severe, the binge eating and the blackouts and, um, the shutdown and pain. I was in a lot of pain. And then the same week that I left my business partnership, um, I was, I had a partner who had pretty severe PTSD and we had been navigating those waters. And that was very intense for me also, because, it is, it's a complex and difficult situation to be in. And, and that same week that I left the business partnership, he was diagnosed with a very rare cancer around his heart. And so we went into a year of fighting his cancer where I got very little sleep. I, there was never a feeling of safety. Like it always felt like the floor was falling yeah. out all the time. And, um, you know, just weeks spent living in the hospital with beeping and flashing lights. And, and so I started to experience a lot of very severe outputs of my nervous system where I would be standing up and suddenly I couldn't stand up anymore. And I would have to crawl to the bedroom, but I couldn't quite make it there without passing out. Or I would be driving to work. I got a job at a Pilates studio and I drive to work in Dripping Springs and I would have to just throw up into my Starbucks cup because I wasn't going to make it in time to pull over. Um, And I started to see the dysregulation in my own nervous system. And I started to look and research a bunch about trauma and PTSD and trying to understand what was happening to his body and his dissociative episodes and why he got autoimmune disease after the cancer. And I was trying to understand what was happening to him. And I, so I started reading all the books that you talk about complex PTSD by Peter Walker or the body keeps the score or waking the tiger, as well as a, a bunch of others. There's some great females on, on these books as well that I'll throw in later. Cause I think that Please. perspective is important too. Yes. But I, I was looking for answers for him and I saw them, but I also saw myself. I saw myself in the books that I was reading and I was like, Oh my God, like I do that, you know? And I, I began talking to him and realizing that like, as a child, I was sick all the time. I was in and out of the hospital and they could never figure out what was wrong with me. I wet the bed. I had those tantrums that I would tell you about. And I, um, and I had the addictive behaviors, the binge eating and the, and the shutdown and the dissociation. And he was like, what happened? What really happened to you? And I thought it was just the abandonment, um, from losing my family in Germany. And then I went back and talked to my mom and asked her like, what happened when we really left? And I understood that there was 
there was more, there was more abuse that I hadn't been aware of. And in some ways it was a, it was a relief to find that out because it explained to me why I had some of this behavior. I'd already lived through it and it was like, Oh, here's a reason why. And so I really began my own process of healing at that time, knowing that I needed to do something or else I was going to get really sick also. And so that was when I began to work with a somatic therapist. That was when I began to work with a hypnotherapist. I um, got my own neuro coach and I started to really explore how... What was the last thing you said? You got your own what coach? My own neuro coach. So what I do for people, I got someone to work with me um, to help heal the deficits in my nervous system where I couldn't see them. And I started to really understand, man, everything is an output of the nervous system, not just pain, not just weakness in the muscles, but also depression, anxiety, unwanted behavior. And I began to realize that if I can learn tools to regulate my nervous system before it goes into those states of hypervigilance or hypovigilance, if I can learn to cultivate the skill to listen to my body and, and hear what it needs, then I can then I can change that and I can interrupt that cycle before I get there. And that's really important because in neurology, there's a principle specific adaptation to impose demand. And it basically just means whatever we do, we get better at, right? The body's Mm -hmm. wired for efficiency. And so if you keep pushing yourself into these states, if you push yourself into pain, if you push yourself into anxiety or panic, you are getting better and better at creating pain. You're getting better and better at creating anxiety, better at creating panic. But if you can start to cultivate the interception to read the internal signals from your body to become aware and to do something that your nervous system likes when you start to feel those signals from your body that will you know, reactivate your parasympathetic system, your calm and respond network and bring you back out of that state, then you get better and better at moving out of that state. And you're not making that pattern such a well-worn path. What have you found for you specifically? Or what was the first reprogramming behavior that you learned to do to intercept one of your old habits that felt like it gave you a breakthrough? The most powerful thing that I have done is work to stimulate my vagus nerve. So mm. vagus nerve is cranial nerve 10. It's the only nerve that runs from your brain down into your body. And it truly is responsible for your brain's ability to read the internal signals from your body. It gives that feed back up to your brain. And for somebody who dissociates... Exa- re- that's exactly what I would ask. Mm-hmm reactivating that nerve is incredibly important. So I do a lot of stimulation for my vagus nerve. You can do something as simple as making circles with your tongue. So if you like make big circles with your tongue over your teeth, your vagus nerve innervates at the back of your tongue. And so just giving it that stimulus by moving your tongue mindfully and intentionally and trying to make each circle a little bit bigger, going back to your teeth a little bit further, doing maybe five or 10 circles in one direction and then five or 10 in the other direction, just that kind of gives your vagus nerve a boost. So if I can just stop take a deep breath, take a long, slow exhale, trying to focus on exhalation-focused breathing, and then do a couple drills that upregulate my vagus nerve, it makes a huge difference for me. And that was the first thing that really started to interrupt my moments of dissociation and my binging. And is it 
more adaptive to do, let's say, hypothetically, um, you know, a couple of sets of some vagus nerve stimulation first thing in the morning or when you feel the first sensation that you are about to move into a neurological state that you don't want to be in and then you do it then or both? I do it both. Um, I do. I have a set. I, you know, having a a daily practice is really important to me because I feel like and then I'm constantly bringing the threat level of my nervous system back down and recalibrating before my day begins. So it's, it's just the same as my spiritual practice, right? I'm putting the time in to, to heal my nervous system, to reconnect to my body before I go out into the world, just like I should probably meditate like before I go out into the world. <laughs> right. Um, it's better for everyone if that happens. Um, and so I do it in the morning, but then also too, like, before I do this podcast with you, I do a couple of drills because I am shy and I'm being visible right now. I'm being highly <laughs> visible and putting my story out there and it's hard for me. And so I do a couple of drills so that I can stay present. I can stay connected with you. I can listen instead of being in a mode of, of fight or flight or freeze. And then also too, what would happen for me a lot in life is I am someone who will push through that stress because I have a purpose that I believe in so much. So I will just, you know, you can give me pain, you can give me dizziness, nausea, fatigue, and I'll just push through it. But on the back end, like we would do this podcast and then tomorrow I would feel like shit. I would be shut down with a migraine. I would be exhausted. I might binge later. And so if I can take care of myself before I do the things that stress me out, then I don't have to face the, the, the negative outputs of a nervous system that goes into too much threat from doing it. I can regulate my nervous system before, regulate my nervous system after, and then I'm able to do the things that I want to do, put my message out into the world, be the person that I want to be without having to, to shut down afterwards. Can I ask what some of the other techniques that you did right before this podcast? Yeah. So I, um, first I do a breathing technique where you just like inhale twice, like a double inhale, like, and then long, slow exhale, trying to make my exhalation twice as long as my inhalation so that I'm upregulating my parasympathetic system. And just as, as few as six of those will help me out a lot. And then I do a little bit of work for my peripheral vision because when we're under threat, we become very focused, right? Our, we really get laser focused with our eyes. So if I can give my brain a signal from my body up that I'm not under threat by expanding my vision to my peripheral, then that also helps my nervous system feel calmer. So I'll work on bringing, just take my thumbs out in front of me and I'll bring them out to the side as far as I can, try to see them both in my periphery, bring them back, do that maybe five or six times trying to go a little bit further each time. Maybe I'll walk holding my thumbs out there and make myself still see them in my periphery. And then I do some stuff to um, release tension out of my throat. I bottle up a lot of tension in my throat and my jaw. So I will do some drinking water while I'm tapping on my jaw to upregulate my glossopharyngeal nerve, which is responsible for swallowing. And then I'll do some tongue movements for vagus nerve and trigeminal stimulation. And then maybe just a couple of my very favorite vestibular drills, which is your balance system, which are, that's always really powerful for me. So there's a couple of things. Uh, One thing that came up that I don't know if the studies have been done, but my intuition would be that if what you're saying is true, 
people who have glasses on average should have slightly more activated threat level systems because what I find with my glasses is it causes me Mm -hmm. to focus more and to actually Mm -hmm. ignore my periphery because it's so much more blurry than what is in front of my glasses. And that they could probably test this and see this, that if you take off your glasses, if you gave them no instructions, just taking off your glasses would probably reduce the threat level. Um, yep. Yep. And it's like a little cage for your eyes, right? So it, one, just like you were saying, it keeps you more focused, but then also two, you're not getting as much range of motion for your right. eyes. So those muscles around your eyes, again, because if we don't use it, we lose it, start to atrophy a little bit and that's not great. So you would want to sometimes at least during the day, take off your glasses and maybe do some eye circles, track your thumb in a circle, see if you can make it a little bit bigger each time without causing any threat response and start to train the muscles of your eyes so that they're activating the cranial nerves that correspond with that. And also so that those muscles are getting stronger, which will improve your vision. And you can, FYI, total side note, but you can actually train yourself into better vision. I have many clients that, um, you know, don't have to wear glasses anymore. Um, would you be willing to share what the uh, proprioceptors slash balancing techniques that you really yeah. enjoy? So training your vestibular system is working with the system that's inside of your inner ear. So there's right. little bones in your inner ear. They float around in fluid and they orient your body with the horizon. So it's telling your body oh, if you're standing up, if you're sitting down. Yeah. So it's, it's basically telling your brain where the horizon is. And, and wow. because of that, it's telling your brain how much tension to have in all of your muscles to keep you standing upright against the force of gravity. So your vestibular system is incredibly important. Yes. For your posture, if it's off a little bit, you see sometimes people, how they kind of like lean to one side or how their head is constantly cocked to one side. That's a vestibular deficit. One of their vestibular systems. Yeah. I'm just joking. Scoliosis comes from uh, vestibular imbalances often. And so what we do to train the vestibular system is, um, is give it stimulation. So we figure out which one has a deficit. And then you would do things like stand with your legs staggered, heel to toe. So you're in what's called a sharpened Romberg stance. And then stand up nice and tall, close your eyes, and you would turn your head right, slowly come back to center, turn your head left, slowly come back to center. And we would do that a few times. We would assess and reassess afterwards. And if you got better, then that means that that ear canal needs more stimulation. If your head up and down was one where you needed the stimulation, that would be another one. Um, You can also train those head movements in sports-specific conditions to give your brain novel stimulus. So it's just ways of activating that system to give it more activation, more stimulus, so that your brain has to adapt and address and fix the deficits that are there. So uh, a couple of things that come up when I hear that is um, there's all sorts of exercises that you can do to hone your balance, but that you would be like on your back or you would be in a handstand or anything like that. And that doesn't seem like that would heal in the same way that if you're standing up erect so your ears can uh, calibrate to the horizon. Is that true? 
That is true. So same idea of like what we do, we get better at. Um, if you want to get better at balancing upright, then you should train your balance standing upright. And so, and you should train it when you're walking and you should train it in, in positions that you want it to be better in because that's how the adaptation is going to get formed. And those are the types of techniques that would improve someone who might have an activated threat system as opposed to the other types of techniques to hone balance? I'm sorry, what was that question? Yeah, so what I'm trying to ask is that it seems like there are specific balancing techniques that will help people with a activated nervous system and that those are the ones where you are standing up as opposed to if you're doing stuff on like a balance ball yeah. or doing the handstands. Yeah, I mean, really most of your life, you're not on a BOSU ball, right? Unless you're like planning <laughs> to spend your life walking around. On a check. There's just not that much point in training your balance on a BOSU ball. It's not very functional. Right. Um, but yes, absolutely. Because what we're trying to do for somebody who has a, um, high threat level is reduce their threat level all all day long, all the time. Your vestibular system is always on. And so if you can make it function better in the ways that you are most of the time, which is standing up, walking, sitting up, then on a second by second basis, you're reducing the threat level of your nervous system. So you really want to you want to train it that way. It kind of works like this. If you think of your nervous system as a bucket, all of the stress goes into into that bucket, right? So relationship stress, financial stress, work stress, um, and all your old trauma patterns and injuries and illness and surgeries, all of that goes into the bucket. But in addition, all of the unique deficits that your nervous system has developed over time also are creating stress that go into the bucket. So say you have like a ankle injury that you never properly rehabbed and now your brain's map of where your body is in space is blurry on your left foot. So every step you take is threatening to your brain. Maybe you have a respiration problem. So every breath you take is not very efficient and that's threatening to your brain. Maybe your right eye has had some issues or you don't use it as much or there's an astigmatism. And so that is creating threat for your brain on a very physiological level. So now you have all of those deficits building up stress in the bucket and our bodies are smart. They know that if we have too much stress for too long, it leads to disease and it leads to mental problems. And so your body, it's, we're resilient. It can tolerate a certain amount of stress, but when the level of stress in that bucket gets too high, your body and your brain are going to try to do something to get you to change your behavior, to bring the threat level down. And that's when it starts producing outputs that are intended to keep you safe. Like pain is an interpretation of your brain that the threat level in that bucket is too high. And it's a behavior change tool. Pain is a behavior change tool that your brain uses to keep your world small. You're not going to work out as much. You're not going to make as big of movements. You're not going to interact with the world as much if you're in pain. So your old brain, your back brain, your cerebellum and your brainstem are like, hey, this is a great way to protect you, to keep you safe and alive. And that's my primary job. So if we can reduce the threat in that bucket, either by processing stress through movement, processing stress somatically, or by healing the deficits in your nervous system, then all of a sudden you have more space in the bucket to take on the stress of life before you start to experience the negative outputs, which could be pain, but it could also be depression, anxiety, fatigue, unwanted behaviors, all of that. 
I love that. And that's very clear. Thank you for that metaphor. A question that comes out of it is, so you've shared practices that allow us to remove or evaporate some of the water in the bucket. Are there techniques that increase the size of the bucket that increase your inherent resiliency to stress? Yes, I think I think that's where somatics really comes in for me. I think that moving my body in a way that releases trauma and stress through my body, like it's really important. It was a really important thing for me to understand that trauma is not an event. Trauma is a physical response in my body, right? So if I can learn to process that through my body, um, with my breath, with movement, with working with a somatic practitioner, then I feel like my resilience, the size of my bucket certainly increases. And then I also think cultivating the skill of interception, being able to Mm. read the signals that your body is sending to you is incredibly important. Not only are there so many studies that show that, you know, poor interception is linked to eating disorders, PTSD, anxiety, depression, but also like we were talking about before, if I can't read my body's signals, then I keep pushing through till I get into that state of hypervigilance or hypovigilance, that that dysregulated nervous system state. So if I can cultivate that skill and everything is a skill and every skill is trainable. So you can begin just by spending a minute a day going inside of your body and saying like, what do I feel like in the bottom of my belly? How does it feel in the center of my chest? How does it feel in my throat? And just begin to listen to those signals to that divine wisdom that is within and then maybe add on little by little, but you're actually training your vagus nerve when you do that. And the more Mm. we train our interceptive system, I, I really believe the more resilient we get because it is a predictive system, your interceptive system. And it sets all of your autonomics. It sets your heart rate, it sets your digestion, your respiration. And many people who have anxiety have have an interceptive system that is not functioning. It's overestimating the amount of threat in the world. So then you wake up in that state of high stress. You're stuck there. And so you want to start to heal that. And when you heal that interceptive system, especially working with your vagus nerve and your insular cortex, then you can, then you're not mispredicting the amount of threat that's coming at you every day. And that leads to much more resilience and less unwanted behavior. There's a couple of questions that I want to ask and I want to ask them all first and then you can unfold how uh, it feels organic to you. But one question that came up is uh, for you personally, if you're in a regulated state, what is your first introceptive sensation that lets you know that your bucket is starting to get full? And then the other question that I feel would be really helpful to the listeners is if you could prescribe just a single technique or habit to begin that would provide the most improvement in people's introception, what would the one habit or technique be that you would recommend? Okay. So for me, what I feel when I know that my nervous system is starting to become dysregulated is tension in the right side of my jaw and the right side of my neck and pain in my left knee. Interesting. And that is... Did you have an injury to your left knee when you were younger? 
Um, I must have, I think, uh, I don't remember it, Okay. but you know, pain pathways become well-worn. And so your brain is going to send you the pain signal where it's easiest and most efficient. So it does not have to be an acute injury, right? Your pain, your brain is just like, Oh, it's easier to make you feel pain here. For a lot of people, it's their low back or their hip or their neck or their jaw. And it's just a well-worn path. It's more efficient. And that's where you're going to feel that pain signal. And that pain signal is a signal from your brain saying, Hey, the threat level is getting too high. And this is a game changer. I think for people to really connect to is that the moment you start to feel pain, that is actually your body helping you sending Mm -hmm. you a signal to say, Hey, you need to do stress reduction behaviors. And this is the first signal that we will send. This is the first whisper. And if you ignore it, we'll start screaming. Yep. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And the other really great one to look out for in yourself is posture. Because when we start to move into startle response, that is a great sign that whatever you're doing is too threatening for your nervous system. So I really started to cultivate the ability to see that in my clients when I was teaching, when I was just teaching movement, but I knew about startle reflex. So if you think like if I used to throw a ball at your face, you would kind of round yourself forward, put your hands up, furrow your brow, create tension in your face and kind of collapse forward in a really kyphotic posture, rounded posture. And so that is a reflex. That's a protective reflex. And when I see people starting to go into that, their shoulders start to rise up. It can be very subtle. There's a little bit of tension between their eyebrows. I know that whatever I'm doing with them is pushing them into threat. And so I can also recognize that in myself when I start to find that I'm rounding forward. And I started to really see that with, with my partner. And that's when I knew that it would also come before a dissociative episode or before an unwanted behavior is the spine would start to change. The, the, the eyes would start to narrow the tension in the brow. And I knew, okay, here we go. This is about to happen. And then I started to recognize it in myself. And so if you can look for those changes in your facial tension, in your jaw and in your spine and your in your shoulders and your spine, that is a sign too that you're moving into threat, whether that's through doing an exercise or just stress in your life. Right. And so the one habit or technique that you would offer for people to begin that you feel would most help them cultivate interception? So one would be to make time to practice it, to make at least one minute a day, becoming very curious about going inside of your body and just seeing how many sensations you can feel. Can you feel your rib cage expand and contract? Can you use that to let you feel the sensory signals coming from your bones? Can you feel what's happening inside of your stomach? Can you feel your heart beating in your chest and your blood moving through your body? Can you feel the space on the bottom of your feet? Can you feel the space that your hands take up in space? Just being really curious is a great starting place. And then actually making the time to sit with your body and be curious with it. And then the other one, like I said, is, is really vagus nerve upregulation. So tongue movements, and then there's a vagus nerve massage that you can do, which would just be to stand up nice and tall, lengthen your spine, relax your shoulders down. And then you would take your 
left hand to the right side of your chest, just below your shoulder, right where your pectoral attaches, and just do five circles in one direction, five circles in the other direction. And then you would take your hand right into the middle of your chest, right on your sternum, five circles in one direction, five circles in the other. With and then you would go over to palm. the left side. Whole palm, yep, whole palm, just a gentle, gentle pressure there. And you're just hitting these different points where the vagus nerve innervates, just giving it a little bit of stimulation and then trying to see what you can feel as you do that. And then going over to your left shoulder, just below your shoulder where the pectoral innervates, five circles in one direction and then five circles in the other direction. And then you would go to your rib cage on the right side, five circles in one direction and then five circles in the other direction. And then you would go over to the left side of your rib cage, five circles in one direction, just easy and smooth. Try to take big, full, deep breaths as you do it. And then five circles in the other direction. And then you would go underneath your right hip bone, kind of on the lower part of your abdomen, five circles in one direction, five circles in the other direction. And then you would go just below your belly button, above your pubic bone, five circles in one direction five circles in the other. And then you would go just below your left hip bone on the lower abdomen, five circles in one direction and five circles in the other direction. And then one more drill that I really, really love to is to do a diaphragm stretch because the vagus nerve innervates the diaphragm. And so not only does this help with your respiration, but it also upregulates your vagus nerve. And you can do that just by standing up nice and tall, breathing in through your nose. And then as you exhale, forward fold your spine and forcefully breathe all the air out of your mouth. So you're really pushing the air out. And then use your hands to kind of touch your belly, touch your rib cage, touch your chest, and just push all the air, all the air, all the air out. And then when you can't breathe out anymore, take a big inhale and come back up to standing. And you can do that a couple times to stretch and stimulate the diaphragm. So then that has some really great benefits because it makes diaphragmatic breathing more possible, kind of moves people out of chest breathing right. and that upregulates our parasympathetic system. And then it also stimulates the vagus nerve and it just makes you connected to and mindful of your breath. What's really interesting is that, so one of the ways that our nervous system will intuitively protect us from a traumatic feeling is to create disassociation. And disassociation mm -hmm. feels like it's the primary reason why people have low interoception because, you know, our animal right. nature is that we would have maximal, perfect interoception. And that is it something that you find that as you increase your interoception, if it was very low, because that's very likely a symptom that you've had a traumatic experience, that people will reclaim repressed memories and or have to re-experience uh, traumatic body sensations once they reclaim their body? Wow, that's a really good question. And I can really only speak to my own experience in that. Although, actually, yeah, yes, the answer is yes, I do. I see it happen with clients all the time where people right. will weep or shake or, you know, yeah. um, have have those experiences. And certainly that happened for me. Um, the more I connected to my body and the more I moved out of dissociation, I, I reconnected to those memories. And also I 
would process the stress through my body. Sometimes my legs would shake or um, I would get sick. And yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. What would be the takeaway message or story that you would want to leave people with who have listened to this and who are curious and interested and recognize that um, this could potentially be healing for them? Yeah, well, I think the most important thing, I know it can get kind of technical and overwhelming when you talk about applied neurology, but just to recognize that everybody does the best they can at the level of their nervous system. And if it feels like sometimes, at least for me, it would feel like, you know, being driven by something beyond yourself. And I just didn't know that that was what was happening. And so that it is possible to heal that. And the answer is to come back into your own body, to come back into your own internal wisdom and, and probably inside of yourself, inside of your body, it knows, it knows what it needs. It, it will guide you to the help that you need. It will guide you to the practices that you need, but know that there are other modalities of healing besides just cognitively trying to change your behavior, cognitively trying to override trauma responses and that there's all kinds of practitioners and ways, but that it's, that it's out there for you. You know, there's, there's other options. And my favorite question to end these podcasts on are, or is, uh, let's say that you've accomplished your life purpose and that you're at the end of your life and you know that at the end of this day, you're going to die peacefully in your sleep. The questions are, um, when you look back on your life, uh, what will you be most proud of that you accomplished? And how would you want to spend that last day? Those are good questions. You know, I think I'm most proud of my curiosity and that that it has pulled me through. It has allowed me to turn very painful experiences into expansion and into ways to be of service to others. And I will hope that I just contributed a little bit through my own experiences and my own curiosity to helping other people find the same, the same healing and expansion and and their own way back to their body. Um, I, I don't know if I'm proud is the right word, but I'm extremely grateful for my curiosity. And I feel like that is the best part of myself. Um, and how I would want to spend the day, I would want to be out in nature, but I would also want to be with a couple of people that I really love. Um, so I would want to have connection to my people, but I would want to be somewhere too where I could lay around and breathe with the earth and feel, feel the peace that comes with that. And if you could leave a single message on a piece of paper, either for your children or grandchildren, or just for the generation that is coming into the world as you're going out of the world, what message would you leave? Um, that there is so much inside of yourself so much wisdom and so much power and so much possibility. And when you feel really lost, if you can try to find the way back to inside of yourself. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for doing thank what you're so doing. Thank you so much for having me. 
And I really enjoy this and I can feel it's going to help. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to be here.